so you guys know how this goes. Um, you know, if I thought about it, I would have brought like, I would have brought like an '80s style boombox, and <laughs> Wait, uh, these guys can sing the song and play and play the play the intro for y'all. Right. But um, but anyway, here's how it works. We're we're at we're at 20 books. Glad to have y'all with us. This is just going to be kind of a a fun um, a fun interview that we're going to have here um, with Rick Partlow here, and. Uh, you know, you, you you guys don't have to be quiet or whatever. You can talk. You can laugh. I don't care. None of us care. So um, anyway, so I'm Steve Diamond. You guys know this. Hi. Nice to see y'all. Um, I just introduced myself like that. Larry gets all involved in his movie quotes like... Oh. I didn't know you were... He prepped a movie quote. There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind of never even considered for mass production... Too weird to live and too rare to die. <laughs> All right. Now today... Uh, I didn't know we'd started. <laughs> yeah, we started. Um, all right. So today uh, we're, we're pretty excited to have, uh, to have Rick on as our guest. Um, we, we've known Rick for a minute here. Um, uh, as, Larry, as Larry says, Rick is, Rick is awfully prolific. What, how, do, how do you introduce Rick, Larry? The Machine. Rick the Machine. Partlow. All right, Rick, why don't you uh, introduce yourselves for, obviously, our Writer Dojo is recorded in front of a live studio audience, people, <laughs> and then for the people who will be listening to this later on. Hi, I'm Rick Partlow. I am originally from Florida, live now in Wyoming, and um, I started writing science fiction when I was a little kid and got serious about it after college, tried to get uh, traditionally published. I had... Uh, Two books written, which are Duty, Honor, Planet, and Glory Boy, or sorry, Birthright, uh, two of the first ones that I published myself. And uh, I had an agent and lots of high hopes. And when that did not happen, I kind of crashed to the ground and didn't finish another book for about 10 years. <laughs> and then uh, when the uh, Kindle revolution happened in about 2010, I had a, f a friend of mine, very close friend, who I'll be eternally, great, eternally grateful to, came and said, hey, you should publish your books on Kindle. So I wound up doing it, and uh, they did pretty well. I wrote sequels to them way too slow. Uh, it took me a while to, to get to the machine level. I was writing like a book a year until I picked things up and started you know, making a process out of it. And now I have uh, 64 novels completed, I think 62 of them are published already. I work, I used to self-publish, but now I work with uh, Athon Books, and uh, I have a couple of series with Variant Press. I had, a, I had one with Permantha Press until they kind of sold it to Athon. So I've, I'm working with small presses now, and uh, I've been doing pretty well. I've, I've done well enough to uh, make a living at it now for about, almost seven years which is really impressive um we were up against each other for a dragon award once too we were yes i i felt feel like uh losing it to you was uh <laughs> honorable no no to, to be fair though that well like you know, we, we even talked about that beforehand because i plugged everybody else i was up against because i liked everybody like everybody i was up against that year was like really a good solid writer and i remember uh talking to you about it and i was like it's like, dude, it's it's Dragon Con. I mean, and they're just enthusiastic fans, and getting in there just it, it's it's 
it just means that you've been recognized, that people like your stuff. Exactly. Because it's a big crowd there. And so just getting, getting recognized for a dragon, that's huge. I mean, that's awesome. And congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, and I would have been happy to lose to any of you guys because you were all pretty cool. The problem is for me, it's like dragon is dragon. And that's like, uh, like, like my and, home. And your fan base is fanatical. Yeah, they, they, that's, <laughs> they, they, they live there and they just like roll into the con. You know, they yeah. don't have to rent hotel rooms. It's just that's where they're at already. Um, well, I mean, it was just an incredible experience to be up in fi- a finalist against people like you, like Walter John Williams, who's one of my literary heroes. Um, I forget who else was nominated besides uh, Jonathan Brazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jonathan Brazy yeah. was there. Uh, and so that just that was awesome. But, but I knew you before that, too. Yeah, I actually met you for the first time in Tampa in 2017 at the com- at the Comic Con, which was a dead little thing for writers. Yeah, yeah, and that was I got to meet you and Michael Stackpole, so that was neat. Yeah, yeah, it was Michael Stackpole, and uh, I think we we wound up eating. Uh, we went, I think we wound up me and you eating at a food truck, if I remember right. Not that one, though. No. Was that not the one? Okay. No, no. no, so I've known Rick for a lot of years now, and I, and I I knew you online first back when you were on the high road and the firing line, way freaking mm-hmm. back when. And it's been it's been fun, like you said, the last seven years I, to watch your career blow up. I've been doing this about fifteen now, mm-hmm. and so but yeah, so like like I said, last, those last few years, like you 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 are now a well recognized author amongst our like our like community of uh, of of people who are into like our genre fiction stuff, and it's been fun to watch. Well, thank you. Yeah, so it was fun to watch you go from selling your. Uh CDs out of the back of your car with Monster Hunter. <laughs> yeah, I was basically the I was the equivalent to a garage band. Uh, I mean, better that than like opening your trench coat and having them there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd open my trench coat and it'd be like twenty five dollar print on demand paperbacks. Hey kids, back. want some candy? That's, that's a bulletproof hey, trench coat at that point, then. <laughs> hey kids, you want some gun nut fiction with monsters in it? And they'd be like, "Yes, Mister." Like, sweet. So now I'm on another watch list. <laughs> Um, well, so we're, we're going to talk about, a, uh, we were talking before the show, cause whenever we have a guest on, we like to ask you guys like what something you feel passionate about, what's something you want to share with the audience. And you had an interesting one, uh, th- th- that you wanted to talk about today. Yeah, I was at this, uh, show, especially at 20 books, I wanted to talk about the definition of your personal definition of success as an author, because I feel like a lot of authors, I mean, I've been able to make a full-time living at this, and I'm very grateful, but that's like a really incredibly small percentage of authors are going to be able to do that, and I feel like way too many of them, people I know, feel like they're failures if they can't make a living off being an author, and, and that's just not so, because looking through history, most of the greatest authors in history weren't full-time authors. You know, they, they had other jobs. It, it's actually an interesting one, and I, I, I wrote many years ago as a joke, uh, the alphabetical list of author success, yeah. uh, and you can look that up on the internet, um, and, and I, I wrote it as a joke, but it actually is a strangely appropriate thing, because everybody has like their the uh, a level that you're at as an author, and the whole thing is just about getting yourself to the next one. Yeah, and the only the only thing I would amend for that that list is that in the age of self-publishing and small publishing, it's possible to meet the financial requirements of some of those things without being recognized by anybody. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's true because it's, it's like I wrote that a long time ago. It's totally dated now because um, there are people, 
It's funny too, because like when you're arguing with some dork on the internet, they'll always be like, "Well, I've never heard of you." Yeah. It's like, dude, there are literally musicians that sell out stadiums that I've never heard of. Doesn't make them less of a musician, right, or, or less of a cool band. There's movies that that have made billions of dollars that I've never watched. You know, that's the world's a big place. Yeah. So, so part of the fame thing is like, well, I've never heard of you. It's like, doesn't matter if you have heard of me. If like a hundred thousand military sci-fi and, and space opera fans have heard of you, then you're good. Well, that's that's part of not the definition of success, but that's part of if you really do want to do this full time, and you're not in like the very small percentage of people who get traditionally published and have a you know a publish a full size you know big publishing company backing them and putting their name out there. The key is to hit a genre, hit a audience that is hungry to read what you're writing and do it better than most of the other people. Because that's, it's not, uh, it's not what I imagined when I was like 25 and trying to get uh, Trab published and had an agent. I was thinking, you know, I'm going to be signing books in uh, Barnes and Noble, you know, and my, their, their books are out there. And at this point, you know, in my life, there aren't that many bookstores. And, uh, you know, most people get their books online. I, Amazon is, sells like ninety percent of the books that are sold in the in the in the world. So, it's a different it's a different definition of success now than it used to be. Yeah, the fifteen years I've been doing it, the the industry's changed, and people always ask me, it's like like what what's coming next, and and I don't know. And we've had whole episodes of the show where we've talked about that. Anybody who claims to know doesn't, and they're, or they're trying to sell you something. <laughs> um, on the success thing, like even the, like the book signing thing, that was like a running joke for a lot of years, you know. Uh, you're not a real author unless you have X number of people at your book signings. <laughs> yeah. But I heard a story one time. It was, uh, it was before the HBO show came author, out. <laughs> no, I never, I never will be. I, I, you know, I've had 400, and that still doesn't count. Um, so George Martin was signing at a Barnes & Noble, right? And he was in the cat. And so they get on, and this is before the HBO show came out. And the, uh, the bookstore manager told me this story. And so he gets the bookstore manager gets on the PA at the Barnes and Noble and says, "Author George Martin of the Song of Ice and Fire or whatever is going to be in our cafe signing books in five minutes, right?" And uh, and the the manager said there was like five people sitting in the cafe. He made the announcement. Three of them got up and left. <laughs> <laughs> so, so even authors who go on to make like stupid amount of money because they, they got a TV show uh, doesn't necessarily – the fame thing is so fleeting. Well, and there's a huge misconception about the whole book signing like status thing that we have, right? Uh, when, back, when, back in the olden days when I was at bookstores and, and I was managing bookstores, it was um, – Authors, on average, would sell five books at a book signing. Five. And, that, and that's not, I mean, that goes for, for guys like me or Rick or whoever. On average, five. And so, but I think we all had the same thought, right? We're like, oh, man, it'd be really great to be sitting there at that, at that bookstore, have the line going out the door, you know, rabid fans, you know, they're throwing their shirts at us or whatever. I don't know. Whatever they do at book signings, we didn't know. Um, and, 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 and being all excited for that, um, I, I remember my first book signing. It was actually, uh, geez, it was 
12 years ago, almost exactly. Um, it was that, that uh, world fantasy that you and I crashed, Larry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it was my very first signing, and I signed three books. And I was like, all right, I've made it. And then, you know, I, I hadn't made it. <laughs> I've had in one book tour where I would go to a bookstore and I would sign a hundred books and I'd have a hundred people and it was awesome. It was a big party, big bunch of fans, good time, awesome. Drive to the next town, I'd have three people. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, between the difference between like Thursday and Friday, you know what I mean? It's, it's such a weird thing for people to base... Uh, um, base anything on so for any of you out there listening thinking that that is like an actual thing uh, it's fun it, it's it's a fun thing does it make much business difference hmm. it used to in the old days make a little bit but honestly as time has gone on and uh, as rick was saying more and more stuff has gone online i think it makes less and less when i do them now it's more a chance for me to socialize with my hardcore evangelical fans and when i say evangelical i mean that guy who spreads the word of monster hunter yeah. You know, I love that guy. And then, so that is a guy that I will travel across America and hang out with, you know, him and a bunch of other people at a bookstore because that's good marketing. But overall, for most authors, eh. I have been to exactly zero book signings. Yeah, see, there you go. And you're making a living off this. And uh, when I was younger, my, my vision of success was to have everybody knew who I was, you know. And at this point, though, I am very happy being anonymous because I see the I see the kind of attention that uh, <laughs> the people who they do know your name get you, and I'm like, eh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Rick's looking at me as he says <laughs> it, and then sitting in the audience, we have uh, Michael Rothman, M. A. Rothman, and other guys who like are recognized, and sometimes that is not the funnest thing in the universe for you. I mean, I am just as prolifically obnoxious on. On Twixer or whatever you it's called are. now, as I as, tag you in sometimes, as Larry. <laughs> but the thing is, people still don't know who I am, and they still I, there's people look up my name and like, oh, what do you write? This uh, fantasy, science fiction, BS, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's what I write. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I remember we, me and you had somebody we got. Speaking of marketing, uh, you you were fighting with somebody on Twitter. I think it was you. And well, she was trying to say something that you hadn't actually said. And I'm like, yeah, he never said that. And, she, and I was very polite with her. And she time, got really sure. mad at you, though. Yeah. And then she said you were a writer, too. She's like, well, I'm never going to buy your books. Yeah. And I said, well, that's just hurtful. And so <laughs> we just and so this actually turned out to be some guerrilla marketing where I, yeah. uh, as I took her tweet, we're saying, well, I'm not going to buy Rick Partler's books ever again. I was like... It's a real shame that if you guys were to counteract this and then share your receipts. You know the funny thing? I never really did much on Twitter. I had 68 followers when that happened. Now I have over 1,000. Oh, yeah. That was fun. That was fun. So sometimes marketing opportunities are like in the most unlikely of places, but you got to be organic about it, you know? Oh, yeah. Because there's no way I could just provoke a crazy woman into attacking you for book sales. Well, you could, but it would be labor-intensive. <laughs> I I'm curious, Rick, at what, because you, you said a couple times, like, you know, early on you had these, you, you had these ideas of what success looked like. And then, so, so what was the point where it changed for you? I think that, uh, I think it changed after the letdown, mm -hmm. after the letdown, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not going to get this publishing contract. You know, I'm not going to be the next, uh, 
Walter John Williams or William Gibson, then I'm like, it would really be nice if, any, if I could get people outside my family to read my books. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> but so your when, mom said it was great. Yeah. So when I, um, when I put it on Kindle, I mean, this was way back in the early... This is before shows like this or blogs or podcasts. Nobody knew what they were doing. And the very few that did made buttloads of money. Yeah, it's kind of the Wild West gold rush. Yeah. This is back when, you know, what's his name, the guy with the um, wool... Hugh Howie. Oh, Hugh Howie. Hugh Howie. This was when yeah. he was making was making his chops, you know, because he knew what was going on. He when knew the Martian he was doing. made a bazillion when, dollars. Yeah. So I I put these two books on Kindle for ninety nine cents each because I figured nobody's going to pay any more than that for them, and I made these homemade covers with a publicly available image from from the internet and not even book cover shape, just square, with with the Photoshop titles. I put them on there, and I sold 30,000 copies of them in three months. Wow. Which was a lot, but at night, at me getting 30 cents a copy, right. it meant, which, you know, it's still $10,000. So when I hit $10,000, I'm like, you know, maybe success is just me getting some money out of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, and I, and I, I looked at it that way. And honestly, I, I did, I took my own pace. I wrote a book a year. Like I said, it took me six years to get up to the point where I had, um, uh, seven books written and I was happy with that and that's what I, I really wanted to say was I've I have found a way to make a living at this but if I had only ever did um, back then I did like seat of the pants I, did, I just you know pants all these novels I didn't plot them out and doing like took my time wrote as the muse hit me not like Ringo, but uh, you know, a little bit, a little bit less normal. Intense. Normal muse, yeah, normal muse. <laughs> not the muse that kicks you into the basement and whips you. Yeah, not the muse that hibernates for a year <laughs> yeah. and then like puts you in a week long frenzy. Yeah, but I just I wrote as I as it hit me. It was a hobby, and it was a hobby I was making a few thousand dollars a year at, so I could buy a new camera lens or go on a trip, you know. And that was to me that felt successful. And when the time came that. I did hit it bigger financially, which was when I wrote Glory Boy, um, which for some reason, still unbeknownst to me, I did no marketing whatsoever. Uh, I just put it out there and made sure people knew, hey, this is attached to these other three books. And all of a sudden, boom, money started coming in. And I'm like, you know, this, maybe I could make a living at this. But at the time, I was, it took me, after that book was written, still three years before I quit my day job. And uh, another year and a half after that before my wife did. So, uh, you know, I was, I was very hesitant to say, this, oh, this is going to last, because I was right. all too used to, to things happening, you know, going in and out. But, well, Steve and I have both known guys who've made the jump too early, Yeah, where they're like, okay, I'm a writer now, and from here on out, it's just going to be like honey butter and like <laughs> yeah. rainbows. And they quit their day job, and then it doesn't materialize. Oh, well, when I, in fe I'll never forget this, because in, in February of 2017, uh, Glory Boy came out in December. February 2017, I got a urbaning statement from Amazon for $28,000 for that month. And I'm like, holy crap, 12 <laughs> times 28? Oh, my God, I could be making 300. Well, of course, that did not happen. Right. And uh, if I had been, if I had given in to my, uh, you know, 
initial elation, I would have quit my job and had my wife quit and we would have bought a new house. But, you know, <laughs> it's like, no, no, this, this is just the, the peak. And it kind of settled off. And it was a great year. But then the next year was a little bit less. And the next year was a little bit less until I hit the next thing, drop tripper, that brought me back up. But having, having gone through that, knowing that this doesn't last, yeah. I was very, very cautious about it, it, that's, that's an interesting thing that gets into the finance angle, which, you know, me and Steve being former accountants is one that we kind of like love. But so even at different levels of your career, any sort of business, you get used to like your cash flow. Cash flow is the biggest single killer of businesses, right? Mm-hmm. So even if you're established and you've quit your job, stuff comes along like COVID. And all of a sudden, like I, I, I just recently got processed my COVID royalty checks. You know, there's such a delay in TreadPub. And it's like, I tell you, when 99% of the bookstores in America are closed and you sell a lot of physical copies, even if you're doing okay, all of a sudden that is a kick in the butt. And I, and I had the opposite uh, reaction because all of my book sales were ebooks and audiobooks. Yep. So I sold more books in 2020 than I ever had before. <laughs> it's the weird, it's those weird uh, uh, oddities of business, the ebb and flow of like weird crap happens. Because during that, like audiobooks actually went down overall because there was less people commuting. Yep. Uh, and you just don't think of that because a lot of the audiobook audiences, guys driving to and from work. And all of a sudden they weren't commuting anymore, so they weren't buying audiobooks. And it was weird the drop you got on that. Ebooks stayed about the same, but physical books, toilet. Like, just absolute win in the toilet. Mm-hmm. And it's just the weirdest damn thing. Um, but yeah, so we've talked on the show a lot about budgeting and stuff, which is like a pet peeve topic for us because so many writers are artistic, but they're complete idiots when it comes to like <laughs> finance. We know guys are like brilliant authors. Brilliant, brilliant authors. In my opinion, and this is just as a, as a layman, the best artist of any kind, singers, authors, uh, actors, have a tenuous connection to reality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> how, how many... Okay, people always joke about, like, Nicolas Cage makes every movie, right? Like, yeah. like he makes... But the thing is, Nicolas Cage also got in massive trouble with the IRS back when he was on top of the world, and he had, like, money, like, waterfalls of money oh, yeah. pouring in. And a lot he, of actors get in trouble with the IRS. Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes, yeah. You know, when, when, when a massive, massive authors, authors, artists, whatever, when they say, so at what point should I start paying taxes? <laughs> <laughs> like, ooh. That, that would um, be the first point right off the bat. <laughs> and, and we just, us accounting guys, our eyes would get all big. We'd be like, what? <laughs> like, I started getting anxiety on their behalf. Like, oh, no, like the IRS and their 87,000 new agents with guns are going to come bursting through the door at any second. <laughs> yeah, I mean if you're getting like 10 million uh, 10 million dollars, you know, from like foreign oil companies it's like, eh. "Oh, wait, you got a $600 royalty check?" Hmm. <laughs> you know, they're on you, oh, man. Oh, I can't I can't tell you how confusing it was to me when I got my first 1099. I'm like, "What do I do with this?" It's like, "What does this mean?" <laughs> yeah. well, cuz most people, you know, you're a regular salary employee and they take the taxes out and then at the end of the year you get money back. Exactly. And writers come from that pool of normal people and then all of a sudden you get like this big fat royalty check and you're like i'm gonna go buy a car you know and <laughs> no, no no that's what withholdings are for guys and <laughs> totally different topic uh, yeah. <laughs> uh we're all screwed up because this is a live session uh so we do need to take a commercial break yes which, which for our live audience it's gonna be like three seconds yeah but for you guys at home listen to this nothing is ever as it seems Alpha-1 is participating in a first-contact diplomatic operation with the Cortians, Omega's first. 
Unfortunately, it's going to split the team. The stringent exchange requirements narrow the list to Echo, PGLEIA's top Division I agent, the man being groomed to be the next director, and Omega's partner. A plum assignment for the pick of the crop. But Omega doesn't see it that way. She is determined to stop the mission from going forward at any cost. Why is Omega trying to scuttle a diplomatic mission? Is something bigger, more menacing happening to her, to them? Will, can, Alpha One survive? Book four in the Division One series, Tour de Force by Stephanie Osborne. Available on Amazon now. Pick up your copy today. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Welcome back, everybody. Oh, I feel so refreshed. Oh, man, it was, it was a really long break. It lasted three whole seconds. Um, anyway, okay, so, so we're back with you, Rick. Um, you've kind of taken us through the early parts of your, of your career and, and a lot of the mental shifts that happen with you. So you, you mentioned early that, that you were kind of doing the, the one book a year sort of thing. So at what point did that shift over for you and you're like, you know what? I need to write like 9 million books here because that's apparently what I do now. Well, it happened kind of uh, organically because the book that made me take off Glory Boy, it was the, when I originally came up with the characters for my Birthright trilogy, they were all fighting in this war. And I had plotted out, you know, just in my, like made, made a lot of notes about this war. And I was going to write a book about that. But as it turned out, when I was writing the first two books to try to get published, my agent said, you know, maybe not a war story. So I turned it into a post-war story with a guy who was a enhanced commando during the war who's now like a cop on, a, on what used to be a, a small agricultural colony, but it's turned into this huge mining colony with all kinds of crime. And I had all these notes. I had flashbacks that he's had during these three books to the war, like, well, I know everything that happens in the war. I'm just going to put all that together and write that book. And I had to write it all down to make sure I didn't, you know, get anything wrong and contradict myself, which meant I accidentally outlined that book. Can't believe it. And it you. took, and as opposed to taking a year, it only took me three months to write. Oh. And I'm like, light bulb goes on. Mental breakthrough. Yeah, there's, it's possible to write faster if I actually know what I'm going to write first. <laughs> Interesting. You shut your mouth, Rick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, the next series I wrote, I wrote four books. I outlined them all, and it took me like a month and a half per book to write them. And uh, from then on, I just figured, you know, 
Um, now, this is going to sound like heresy to a lot of people because I read all the writer Facebook groups and blogs and everything, and they're like, oh, writing is rewriting. That Well, that's not how I write. I did not get this way automa- you know, immediately. It took me years and years and years of practice. But when I write, I write basically my outline is a first draft without, without the, you know, narration without the dialogue it's like a 10,000 word outline for a 100,000 word book okay um and then my next draft is the final draft except for corrections i write the next draft is like everything and then i send it to the editors and make a f- whatever corrections they say and that's it i don't write multiple drafts of a book i write an outline that's about 10,000 words then i write the, the final draft prior to editing so, so your first pass must be pretty dang clean then. I have been told by multiple editors that it's the cleanest thing they've ever read. That's cool. And the, the re- there was a reason for that because also this goes against a lot of uh, what I've heard in process for a lot of people. But a lot of people disengage their internal editor when they write their first draft and they just get it out there on paper. Right. Um, I don't do that. I write a lot of words in a day, but I don't write them. I know a lot of people do sprints where they'll just do it fast. I write from morning till night, and I take my time, and I read what I just wrote. And I, that's why it takes, like, I mean, I do 3,000 words a day every day. But it takes me from when I get up in the morning to when I go to bed at night. Not the whole time. Obviously, I go to the gym. I, I live. I, I mean, I mean I eat dinner, but I, whenever I'm not doing other things, I'm, I'm writing, and I'm writing in a way where I make sure that everything is clean. Unlike what also other people do, I do not skip over things and come back to them. Oh, I, see, I do that, yeah. yeah I, I will belabor names in the outline phase, but sometimes it'll be like a word. I want to use this word. What is this word? And I don't just put it down like a find that word later i just sit there and look up that word then and it's it takes time but it it works for me and then i get a really clean first draft and the the advantage of getting a really clean first draft is i write a book in 30 days or 45 days i send it to the editors i start in the next book and the next thing i see of that book is me just going through accepting edits and things like that and then that's gone so i never have to step back into the head space of that book again. That's interesting. Hmm. It, it, it's fascinating to me because there's so many different processes available that, that we, because I'm, I'm watching the writers, I'm looking at like people, as like, you say something, they're nodding along and the other stuff you say like that, and they're like, huh? <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, I do it totally different. But it's yeah. interesting to me that they both work well, it's, ba- it, based on it, your brain. It's based on a lot of experience, what you, the way you started writing. A lot, of, a lot of what works for me as a writer is unique to me, or at least rare enough that I haven't met anybody else. I started reading adult books, not adult books, but books, <laughs> Easy there. books written for grown-ups when I was about four years old. Yeah. My dad read to me when I was really tiny. I was writing, uh, be able to write like when I was three or four years old. So I was reading like... Um, I guess I was reading stuff that would be considered YA now, 
although that didn't exist then, yeah. uh, when I was like four or five years old. So I, I started reading really early. So we were a little, like, like our sci-fi to choose from was like Dune. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I did read Highlands Juveniles. That's what oh, yeah. really, that was the crack for me. That got me yeah. into it, you know. It's the silver spaceships. Fantastic um, stuff. And I was growing up in the uh, early 70s, so I had all the NASA stuff from the moon landing, you know, and it was, it was enough to just to get me hooked on science fiction forever. But reading that much, and I, w I would read like a book a day. I could read really fast. Still can read really fast when I have the time to, which is rare. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're probably like the rest of us where um, reading is, writing has kind of killed reading for you. It hasn't killed it, but it's just... I, I don't have time to do it on a normal basis. I, I can do it when I'm like uh, resting on the uh, porcelain. Oh. <laughs> you, you have your toilet novel no, ready I, to I go. Have my, I have all of them. Oh. <laughs> yeah, um, you got her phone. I got my phone. Um, I, know, I know some people hate to read on their phone, but I've got thousands of novels on my phone and Kindle, and I, I read them when I can, like, you know, in the doctor's office or whatever, so... I, I, I got a question for you about your process then. Do you find that you work consistently throughout the year? Uh, just like you go from one book to the next book to the next book? Or do you have like gaps? Because now that you're doing the outlines, do you have like thinking gaps in there? What usually happens is I will finish one book and then I will take probably a week to outline the next book I'm going to do. Uh, if it's a new series, like totally different characters I've never seen before, sometimes I take two weeks because that takes more time to invent new people. If it's like in a new, in a new universe sometimes, that's really, that really takes that whole two weeks. Like uh, I'm writing a new series that I started called uh, World War Mars for Aethon. And it's a totally new, totally new universe. It's totally new backgrounds. So I took... I took a full two weeks, I just had to sit down, come up with when is this, what's going on, you know. But if it's in a universe that I've already written in, like I have a, I have a huge universe. The Drop Trooper books are in this universe. Those are, those are really popular from what yeah. I've seen. They seem, well, to, seem to do really well. They bought me a house in Wyoming. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, they're in a universe that started back with Birthright, back uh, when, in, the late, in the late 90s when I was writing those two books for that agent. Uh, one of them was Birthright, and that was in a universe that I actually started inventing when I was 18, sitting in church, uh, a little bored, with a, I had a piece, folded piece of paper and a pen, and I was drawing a futuristic commando. Because <laughs> I read a bunch of uh, articles and stuff like, and, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, There Will Be War, mm -hmm. the anthology by Jerry Pornell. Yeah and a step farther out and all that. I used to read that stuff, and I'd read Aviation Week and Space Technology and Analog and all that. So I had all these little bits of data about the ideas for future wars, and I took all of them together and put them in this commando-looking guy and started thinking right there, what would he be doing? What kind of a war would he be fighting? What kind of a society would have produced him? And that was the beginning of me producing the whole birthright universe, which wound up being drop trooper. So if I, I have almost 40 years of background in my head and written down about this universe. So anything I write in here, it's easy. It's, it takes a couple of days to write a outline because I, everything's 
the whole history of it, I have like uh, 40 books in this universe. So It's it, so flushed out yeah, in your head. It's so ready to roll. So that I can do in a couple of days. But if it's something new, that can take a couple of weeks because world building is fun, and I love doing it, by the way, but it, it can take some time. Yeah, it's, it's one of those, like when I, when we did an episode about productivity, because everybody's different. Uh, and this is something that me and you talked about a little bit before the episode too. And you can never ever compare yourself to somebody else because your brains work so different and, and your process works so different. And I think what all of us has to do is we have to find what's our comfy, exactly. yeah. what's our comfy rate, you know? Yeah. And it's like sometimes, do you, I mean, how long does it take you to plan for you? If it's, if it's drop trooper, it's a few days, you know, no big deal. You're ready to roll. If it's something new, you're looking at, you know, a couple weeks. Uh, for me, new series, it's going to take a little bit longer. That's just like how my brain processes. Um, if you're doing 3,000... Well, process? Uh, well, you <laughs> and know. And probably if you're writing in the, like a modern-day fantasy, it, it probably takes even more research because you can't just make up everything. Yeah, and that's one of my problems, too, is like so, so like when you talk about like the... Like it, you'll, you'll stop your workflow to go look something up. Um, I, if I'm writing a modern thing, I just go... My, my little thing is XX, and then yeah. I do a Control-F at the end and then go through and find all the XXs. That's all the stuff I need to research. Yeah. Because um, a lot of times, if I'm writing, like, modern universe stuff, it's got to be spot on or my audience, like, loses their crap. Well, I mean, I, you, you I've, know what I've like. written, <laughs> like, two series that take place close to modern times, and it was so much harder to actually have to look at where places are and what the roads are like because I, I, you know, usually I can make that stuff up, but I wrote, I told you, I, I, I told you about that Gates of Eternity series I wrote, and it takes place in basically the modern modern day Wyoming and Nevada and places in some Eastern Europe, and I'm like, I had to spend hours and hours going through on Google Earth, yeah, looking yeah. at stuff. Because the second you get that stuff wrong, people lose their I crap. <laughs> They're like, that road doesn't go there, and then, the, <laughs> and they'll be they'll be angry at you. It's not like. Um, so it's like me and Jason Cordova just did Monster Hunter Memoirs Fevers, 1970s L.A. Jason handled, that's where Jason grew up. So he did all the geography stuff, and I just trusted him. Because he's like talking about, we're going to take, you know, uh, the Hillshire Boulevard over. And I was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, um, but yeah, so there's that angle too. But like, um, it's interesting to me. So but you do like 3,000 words a week, or okay. 3,000 words a day, consistent throughout the year. I, the only time I don't is either when I am, sometimes when I'm outlining, I'll do less or more, it just depends. Um, but I take two weeks every spring, and I go into Yellowstone and do wildlife photography, and that's pretty much a dawn until dusk thing, and I cannot write while I'm doing that. I've tried, but by the time you get back, you've been driving 200 or 300 miles a day or hiking, and my, I, I'm brain dead. I can't do anything. Yeah. So I, that's... That's one time in the year I just like, I tell my publishers, everybody, I'm not doing anything. Don't try to call me. I won't have signal. So that's... Just leave <laughs> me be. Yes, exactly. So Somebody so had a question, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh. oh, that was our five-minute warning. Okay, cool. So, so for you, Rick, how much is too much? Like how, how much... We were kind of talking before, before we, the show um, about like 2020... Where you've written yeah. an idiotic amount of, of words. 2020, because of you know the COVID uh, stuff and people weren't going a lot of places. I I, I wrote a million words, twelve novels. Um, I was writing five thousand words a day 
in three different books at once, like 2,000 in the morning in one book, 1,000 after lunch, and then 2,000 at night in another book. Um, and I found that that was not sustainable for my mental health. Yeah. I mean, I did it, and I'm glad I did it. It, it, it worked out okay. But that's something where I, if I did that on a regular basis year after year, I would be like one of those hermit people, you know, who comes up for air once a month and, you know, hey, has, has, you know, what year is it? Your, your <laughs> wife has left you, your yes. family is gone, your cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, your yeah. kids don't know you. <laughs> so I, I couldn't do that anymore. And I, it wasn't even so much the words, it was trying to slip in and out of three different books at one time. Oh, that's brutal. And I've experimented with different things since then. I've, uh, I've done two books with 2,000 words each. And now, basically, I am trapped by uh, certain business realities into writing a book a month. You know, one book in one series, one month, another book in another series the next month, which is, it's uh, confining in its own way, but um, that is the... Uh, business model that will allow me to maintain my financial security. And that's really what I wanted to talk about too, is that's, I was talking about this to uh, someone last night in the bar. I said, you know, this is what you have to be willing to do if you want to do this full time. Because I hear a lot of people say they want to do it full time. I don't think they understand the commitment you're going to have to make to make a living at writing. Yeah. If, and it's, it's, I mean, it's one thing if you are a big name, somebody strikes it big, and, but if you're like a workaday type who is working the genres, who is trying to stay with the algorithm and keep your name out there, it requires full, a full-time job. Be, people think that being a writer is a life of, you know, just like sitting back with your pipe and your golden retriever and typing a few words and then looking out at the sunset. No, you, you're, you're there writing every day, and you do it whether you like it or not, whether you have a headache, whether you're hungover, whether you're depressed because, you know, your dog died. You, you still write because it's like you have to go to work. It's, it's like a job where you go to work and you do your job and you don't, not, you don't not do your job because you're depressed or you've had a bad day. You still have to do your job. Your boss doesn't care. No. Well, my boss is... The people who own my mortgage. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's interesting because like when we say full time writer, a lot of people in this business in this world say I want to be a full time writer. But what they actually mean is I want to quit my day job and just write books. Yes, and I highly recommend against that uh, unless you are one of the very few. And even if you start making money that's more than your day job, I would say give it a couple of years, two or three years, and at that point you save up the money and and if things go bad, you can go back to. But no, I, I think people, I think more writers should say writing is what I do because I love doing it. And the fact that I make a little money at it is gravy. Well, because if you lose the love, <laughs> yeah. if you lose the passion for the writing, that's when it turns into oh, a Way slog. too many people that I've known since 2011, when I first got into this, who were big, big names in indie writing, don't do it anymore. Yeah. Because they either lost track of the marketing angle, which is very easy to do because pretty much as an indie, you have to be a full-time writer and a full-time marketer unless you luck into someone like I've, the guys at Athon, uh, Jeff Cheney at Variant, uh, they know marketing really well and they can handle that for me. 
And that's great because I don't. I, every time I've tried it, it's been an abject failure. Well, you also had, you're one of those guys, you come in or, with or is that a oh, fist. Okay. I don't think there's anybody in the room after us, though. Okay. So we're, okay. Thank you. So I, I, think, I think one of the things, too, is um, on the marketing <laughs> angle, what, what happens is um, a lot of guys get burned on that, or they're good writers, but they can't get their stuff out there, or, or they're bad writers. But they do the churn and burn, and they're good at the marketing. It's such a weird business. I think you're in this this thing where you you churn and you turn out good stuff, but you're also quality enough and you're good, so you come to the attention of people like Athon, and so now you have somebody doing your marketing for you. That way, you can spend your time being valuable and creative. Oh, it's an ideal situation. If I had not found Athon, I probably would be in the position that I'm telling most people that they could be happy with, which is. Write what you love, work your job, keep, you know, keep the, you know, the food on the table, the house over your head, and the money you get from writing, make that like fun money. Make that vacation money. Don't make that the money you count on to live on. Don't, don't quit your job and say, I'm, I'm going to throw myself into Because I'll tell you what, since I stopped working a day job, I feel like I write less. You know, it's you. People think, oh, I'm going to quit my day job and I'm going to write two books a month or something. You know, no, you you, the the work expand the, t- the what's the saying? The work expands to fill the time you have for it. Yeah, uh, and it's the same with writing. You will find that the that extra time you had to write, that's not going to mean any more words. There's this weird <laughs> thing a lot of people don't realize. They think that writing could be distilled down to just hours. Like, I have X number of hours to write. So let's say right now, like back when I had a day job, and I, I, I had a stupid day job that I worked a lot of hours, and my day job would, like, kick my butt, and I would still write 20 or 30 hours a week, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I would be very productive. Now, when once I no longer had a day job, you think, okay, now that I have, like, 60 hours to write, <laughs> I should be able to write twice as much. No, not at all. Because no. it's not about the hours. It's about the processing cycles of your brain. Exactly. And, and there's only so much computing power there. And so, and, and, and a lot of guys in our business, they'll beat themselves up. And like, so you're, you're more prolific than I am. Um, and I'm more prolific than a lot of people, but that doesn't make them bad. No. Um, Cause they'll look at me like, well, Larry writes two books a year. I, I only wrote one book a year. I suck. No, no. Cause it, you write what you can write based upon what you can do. And they, they also should think, Am I doing this because I'm only in this to make money? Because I, I write, I, I am very lucky in that I write and make a living at it, and I love doing it. And I don't, I don't consider it work. The, the minute I start considering this work is when I probably don't want to do it anymore. It's, it's fun. I enjoy, I enjoy the idea of people paying me to do this stuff because it, it's like, it's Just, like you a, do it. You would do it for fun anyway. I would do, it, I would do it for, I did it for years, for decades, for fun. For myself, and the the only difference is that I didn't, didn't finish as many books because I would have a lot of uh, I would have a lot of mushy middle books where I hit hit that point in the middle where you're like I don't know what happens next. I'll write another book instead. <laughs> yeah, because at that point, because there is that transition where you got to treat it like a job. Yeah, but you can't lose the passion. There's like a fine balance there, and we've known too many guys who've crashed and burned. Oh yeah, I, and some people I've the, I've known people who it became a job for them and they just stopped doing it. And I think that that's well, see, I, I would phrase it different because I'm big on like treating it like a job. Yeah. But I think you got to keep that passion. Well, I, I, I feel like you need to treat 
I need. I think you need to schedule it like a job, but have the expectations of it like a job. But if if the actual words you're writing down feel like a job, yeah. that's when some people bail, and I would too. I I feel like you know some people talk about oh, you know you write these tropes, you know, and yeah, but I have stories and ideas, and I can put them in the framework of those tropes and still get people like Drop Trooper. It's a buttload of tropes. It's space marines. I it's, love tropes. It's a yeah. It's it's a you know alien. It's you know space wars with with the battle suits. But I work into that a whole bunch of stuff like PTSD and um, immigrants in a country and homelessness and um, foster care. And a whole bunch of different stuff that m- matters to me. And I work it in there, and this, the tropes still are there. They get people to, to buy the book. But then you get into the book, and all this other stuff is there, too. And you can write what you care about, and you can put it in a framework that will get people to buy it. That's what marketing's all about. And as much marketing as I do, because I don't know the, the dollars and cents side of it, but that's marketing. If you make the stuff you, are, you care about writing fit into a trope, then you can be successful. That's awesome, Rick. I thank you, man. This has been a really good, uh, really good look. Because like, I, I thought we could run long, but they keep opening the door, and all the noise from outside keeps coming yeah. in. <laughs> they really want you to stop. I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but no, thank you, Rick. I, 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 I'm, I'm, man. I'm excited for you, and I'm excited to, to, to see the the trajectory your career has gone. And I think I think it's been just been fantastic. So thanks for coming. Thanks on, for man. having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for thanks for taking the time for us. We appreciate it. Um, and for you know the live studio audience, uh, thanks for being here and listening to us. We appreciate it. <laughs> all right. So that's all the time we have for today. Uh, this is the Writer Dojo, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you, all Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Korea. By Jack Wilder and Bear and Hair Studios. Theme song, Word Mercenaries by Craig Nibo. New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm slash writer dojo, by leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on the Writer Dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com. Yeah, producer Jack was like, no, F you, use the dog clicker, and we've used it ever since.